This week on the Road to Cinema podcast, Oscar-nominated director Brett Morgan of Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck, The Kid Stays in the Picture, about the legendary film producer Robert Evans' Crossfire Hurricane, one of the best documentaries about the Rolling Stones, and now Jane, produced by National Geographic Films. Director Brett Morgan worked with hundreds of hours of never-before-seen footage from the inception of Jane Goodall's original studies with chimpanzees. Brett shares with us how he incorporated this never-before-seen archival footage, along with a present-day interview, Philip Glass's incredible music score, and intimate journal entries. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter, at jogroad, Instagram, jogroadproductions. You can like our Jog Road Productions Facebook page, and also subscribe to Jog Road Productions on YouTube for video interviews with Don Cheadle, Greta Gerwig, Ewan McGregor, and many more. And you can subscribe to the Road to Cinema podcast on iTunes and Apple Podcasts for a new episode downloaded every week. And you can check out some of our past interviews, including Max Landis and comedian and actor Brett Gelman, who discusses his latest film, Lemon, which is now available on demand. And now we join Oscar-nominated director Brett Morgan as we learn all about his new documentary, Jane, which is now playing in theaters in New York and Los Angeles. I was reading that all the archive footage that you obtained was completely out of order and there was no continuity to it. So I was curious, how did you venture into developing the narrative for the film and also just the overall execution when so much of the footage was sort of scattered about? Well, most of the narrative was derived from Jane's seminal book, In the Shadow of Man, In the Shadow of Man. Um, before I started screening through, before I went about screening through the footage, I read all of Jane's books and, and, and the, whatever biographies I could consume, particularly Dale Peterson's. Um, so I had a fairly strong sense of what the story might entail. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, and then we went to start screening the footage and it became clear within 10 minutes that, um, we were going to be dealing with 140 hours of random shots, which, uh, you know, is a, akin to someone taking James Joyce's Ulysses, uh, uh, dissecting it by letters, dropping them all on the floor, and asking someone to reassemble it. Yeah. Uh, essentially a near-impossible task. Um, so, uh, so the only thing I could do, we had to shut production down at that point, uh, not only was the footage completely random, none of it had sound, and there were, we needed to figure out how to identify the chimpanzees. There were 160 chimpanzees that Hugo filmed, of which only three or four were of relevance to us, and my facial recognition is terrible as it is, so with chimpanzees, not much of an improvement. Um, so we shut the production down for about six months, and I asked uh, our interns to catalog the footage by theme. So we had a whole, you know, we had reels that were dedicated to chimps sleeping, reels dedicated to chimps um, eating. Uh, chimps don't live as multifaceted and dramatic lives as one may think from looking at nature films or from, um, uh, you know, when reflecting upon our own lives. They generally are engaged in one of four activities, which is, you know, sleeping, eating, playing, and we can figure out whatever the fourth one is. Um, you know, so 
once we got that group together, uh, we then evaluated that and went, at, went about um, structuring the film. I was curious, too, um, from you talking about other documentaries that you've worked on, you have a style sometimes of editing the archive material before you ever uh, look at the, the film interview. In this case, you know, the, the, the central interview of the film being Jane Goodall. Was that something that you implemented here where you edited most of the archival material? Yeah, yeah I think you have to edit first before you do the interview. Um, otherwise, how do you know where the camera should be during the interview? You're basically shooting in the dark if you do the interview first. Most people don't think that there's any sort of... Uh, there seems to be this idea in documentary that when you interview a subject, that the lighting and the composition are, are just kind of there, I guess. Like, you know, that you know, and if you compare that to fiction, it's quite an odd assessment, particularly as nonfiction and fiction aesthetics get closer to one another. See, when you, as a director, and you walk into a set, and you have a moment that you're capturing, you figure out where the best place for the camera is, what the best lighting is, to enhance and embellish and make that moment to sing, to try to, to, try to visualize a, a sort of emotional truth. And I feel that it's equally as important in nonfiction um, to to have that level of engagement. However, you can't do that if you shoot the interview before you cut the film because you, you wouldn't necessarily know where things are going to fall. So with Jane, for example, we shot the interview in Dar es Salaam. I had brought Ellen Kiris over with um, a gaffer we had worked with on a pilot for Hulu last year named um, Ian Kincaid, who's Bob Richardson's gaffer. He's an incredible craftsman. And we designed the, the lighting and the, the setups so that um, we knew we had a two-day shoot and that we were going to design them so that the shoot would go from morning light into dusk into the depths of the, the evening into kind of a new day. Um, and so we would make adjustments, you know, and I, I, would, I then engaged Jane in a slightly narrative-based, well, a completely narrative-based interview, meaning we were going to start where it needed to begin in the context of the film and go to the end of the film. Um, so it was fairly easy to track. And then, you know, every time I felt that we took a couple steps forward, we'd make subtle adjustments into the lighting to reflect um, the, the changing of the time. And then, of course, move the camera to wherever we felt it needed to be to mine that particular moment. Uh, now, even in, in that case where you're filming the interview after you've cut most of the film, is there ever sort of uh, any uh, changes that you feel that need to be made post-interview to the actual edited product? Um, yeah, I mean, look, the, the trouble with doing it this way is you can't use a shot out of order. So if I have, like, a morning light shot of Jane... I can't use that once I'm in the evening setup, you know? So you have to be precise where your questions you are really laid out. Precise yeah. Or just use audio only, but, but generally pretty pretty precise. I, I mean, what would happen a lot in Cobain was, um, you know, like Kurt's mom would just start going off on something. And, you know, I would have to stop her because I'd be like, when do we don't have the right lighting? <laughs> <laughs> I need you to hold that thought for tomorrow. 
um, but you know, requires a certain degree of discipline. Uh, what was great in Jane, which I you know noticed back in Cobain, and something that you really utilized uh, so well there, is using the journal entries and making that visual and visceral to the viewer, where you really feel as you're in you're inside Jane's mind as you're looking at the graphics on the screen. Uh, is that you know that goes back to the kids' days in the picture, but the use of graphic design is that something that you're very passionate about in terms of execution for all your films? I think about the animation of my movies is they usually exist because I don't have footage to convey something or that's generally how they start. And I've always said to my editors that that which we don't have is a blessing, not a curse because it forces us to be more creative and to find a, a more unique path to achieve what otherwise, you know, would be sort of pedestrian. Because you see, I think animation and is is generally far more poetic and lyrical than 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 stock footage, um, and it, it it creates a more creative it creates more creative it, it offers more creative opportunities. Um, however, the thing is, I don't believe in doing animation just for animation's sake. So, despite the fact that National Geographic kept asking me um, to. Um, uh, to to make, I remember I showed the first hour of uh, of Jane, and they're like, "So when uh, when are you going to start animating it?" And I was <laughs> like, "Guys, we don't need to animate this. It's, I have footage for everything." Um, but you know, this the animation we do have, which was done by Stefan Nadelman, who did uh, montage as well as Chicago Ten. Um, uh, you know, is um, Jane's journals are are are. are an extension of her, as is her book on tapes and her narration. You know, it's it's her artwork, if you will, if you if you liken it to Kurt. Um, so I enjoy the opportunity to try to present that. My approach to working with ephemera and flat art is no different than a director walking onto a set, and it hasn't been lit yet, and you're essentially looking at a world of opportunities. Perhaps it's a set of a living room. And maybe we're going to make that same set into a haunted house, or maybe we're going to turn it into um, into a scene of great celebration. It all depends on where the camera is placed and what the lighting is like. And I think flat art, ephemera, offers that same potential. When you have a letter from Jane's mom to Jane, or from Hugo to Jane, or during the scene in the film where they get uh, they're they're getting engaged. All of the lighting, you know, we start with one-to-one -one lighting, and then we, we build it out from there. And we shade it, we colorize it um, to be reflective of those moments. Uh, within Jane, I, I've used a, a trick that I did a lot in Kurt, where a lot of the newspapers had a kind of golden hue. Um, you know, but but there's nothing that's accidental. You know, we're, we're sort of... like I said, the same way, no different thing than a director walks on the side. Well, I was curious, too, do you ever uh, storyboard as well, sort of pre-visualize? I do for interviews. Um, for photo animation, no, I think Stefan and I, I mean, we you could say we pre-visualize them by doing offline, doing the, do, constructing whatever we need to do in the offline. This is, this is what happens. 
in the offline, we will put the elements that we think we're going to animate into the cut. And we cut them if there's going to be editing so that the length of shots matches, et cetera, et cetera. I have found on the last couple of projects with Stefan that we kind of tend to do this kind of back and forth, back and forth thing, particularly at the very beginning of the project, trying to find the language. You know, Jane was a little bit elusive in trying to really nail down um, how to approach the, the, the photo animation. Um, and I would say for the most part, it's fairly subtle. I, I think, I don't think we ever did any kind of stereoscopic moves on any of the photographs. I think we kept them fairly two-dimensional throughout and just tried to um, accentuate or embellish them through uh, lighting effects. Uh, now for the music score, which is very powerful, Philip Glass, uh, how do you communicate with a composer in terms of telling him you know, what you're looking for emotionally and, and even do you ever communicate with a composer instrumentally saying you want a specific instrument? Yeah, of course. Um, well, I mean, with Jane, we decided the piano was going to be her voice. And, I, you know, for 20 years I worked with Jeff Dana, um, starting with the kids he's in the picture. And we tended to, we, you know, I think we have a shorthand with one another. Um, Philip was really the first composer that I've worked with since I began working with Jeff. And that at first was a bit intimidating because with Jeff, you see, I don't, I don't necessarily, I know a couple chords. But in general, I'm kind of humming things to him. You know, like, why don't we do it like, mm, and with, um, with Phil, Philip, I, I, I really didn't want to have to go there. That said, by the end of the, the scoring process, I probably was, was going there a bit, uh, as things, as time started to become more of an issue. Uh, but I think that goes to an overall feeling with, you know, when you work with these kind of legends like Ellen Kiris and Philip Glass, and that, you know, you want to be respectful, and yet at the same time, you can't be too respectful if it's getting in the way of your vision. Because ultimately, it's your film, you know, and um, they're there to try to make it work for you. So what's sort of the best way to, to give notes occasionally if you need to? No, man, I'm just honest, you know. I, I don't really beat around the bush. I'm not that pleasant, I guess, in that that context. I'm not, like, in soccer, you know. Uh, there's, like, I used to play soccer, and there are, like, coaches who do positive reinforcement, and there are coaches <laughs> who don't. And I, I tend to see the life as, like, half full. I'm definitely, like, a glass half... I'm sorry, I'm a glass half empty guy, not glass half full. I'm a glass half empty guy, and so... That's kind of how I, that, that's why I'm in the edit room. I, once I, I've structured a film, you know, every waking moment is spent watching it over and over and over again, trying to identify what's wrong with it, and, and what's wrong with it moment to moment, and then correct those until ultimately you screen through the film, there's nothing left to see, and that's when you know the film's done. So that's interesting in terms of your editing process, which I believe you were one of the editors on this film. You watched the film in its entirety over and over again. And whenever you do see a problem, you'll stop, make a note. And to you, the benchmark is really to go through the entire thing. And if you can't find a problem, then you're done at that point. Uh, kind of, yeah. I mean, that's a bit of a simplification, but the I tend to, towards the last three months, I will probably end up watching the film, you know, in its full form two, 
much as I get towards the end, anytime I make a cut, I feel the need to go back to the beginning and watch it all the way through to, to see what the impact is. Because you see, the, the thing with editing is oftentimes when you make a, a change, it's not the scene right after it that's affected, but oftentimes it can be the scene five, six, eight scenes later, you know, with the domino effect. So it becomes critical to sort of reconnect the heartbeat and the pulse of the film. Uh, lastly, I was curious because, you know, I know Jane sort of came to you as an assignment in a way. You know, what were your perceptions of Jane Goodall before you entered into this, and how did that evolve by the end, by the end of the project? Well, I mean, going into it, before I knew her, I thought she was a bit earnest, um, humorless. Um, when I worked with her in the field, I thought she was a bit of a contrarian. Um, I thought she was no-nonsense. Where I stand now, I'm in absolute awe of this woman. I, I think that she is one of the great examples of how one should live their life. And I think we are all the great beneficiaries of her life. I think that, um, and, I, I, and she's wickedly funny. She's got a terrific sense of humor and an amazing zest for life and is tireless. I've never heard the woman complain. Um, and she's just an absolute joy to, uh, to turn around with. Thanks for listening to the Road to Cinema podcast. And you can see the new documentary Jane now playing in New York and Los Angeles. We'll see you next time.